Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. History doesn't have to be boring, buttoned up, or inaccessible. And it certainly didn't end in 1945. It belongs to all of us, and we share and add to it every day. Welcome to the History of Go-Go podcast, where I interview interesting guests, cover a motley crew of topics, and it's a place where you can sit, think, and drink all at the same time. I'm your host, Rob Mellon. My guest today is Mary Thompson. She is the research historian at Mount Vernon. Mary is responsible to support programs in all departments at George Washington's estate with a primary focus on everyday life at Mount Vernon, including domestic routines, foodways, religious practices, slavery, and the enslaved community. She has spent nearly 40 years as a member of the staff at Mount Vernon, dedicating her life to the understanding of the Washingtons. She is the author of The Hands of a Good Providence, Religion in the Life of George Washington, a short biography of Martha Washington, and the only unavoidable subject of regret, George Washington, slavery, and the enslaved community at Mount Vernon, which will be our topic of discussion today. Welcome, Mary. Hello. I want to say that I really, really like that image that you chose for the cover of your book, Painting of, of Mount Vernon. Is that George Washington on the porch? And can you give us some <laughs> thought where that, that painting came from? The painting is a watercolor and ink piece done by an artist named William Russell Birch sometime between 1801 and 1803, which is a little after George Washington died. Uh, Washington died actually in 17. 17- 99. So whether that, whether he just sketched in Washington on the piazza or whether that's someone Birch actually saw there, I don't know. But I, I love the painting too. In the foreground is a, an enslaved person leading a, a white horse. You know, those are all things that people would have seen at Mount Vernon. Well, Mary, it is tradition here to accompany the conversation with a special brew. Today, we have an extra special recipe, which was penned by none other than George Washington himself, in a notebook he kept during the French and Indian War. This is Washington's recipe for small beer. Now, the term small beer refers to the lower quality of brews, typically drunk by servants, or when you had several men to satisfy, such as a Virginia regimental militia. Washington's recipe goes as follows. Take a large sifter full of bran hops to your taste. Boil these three hours. Then strain out 30 gallons into a cooler and put in three gallons of molasses while the beer is still scalding hot. Or rather, drain the molasses into the cooler. Strain the beer on it while still boiling hot and let this stand until it's a little more than blood warm. Then put in a quart of yeast. The weather is very cold outside. Cover it with a blanket. Let it work in the cooler 24 hours, then put it into the cask. Leave the bung open till it is almost done working. Bottle it that day or week that it was brewed. Now that's going to make you quite a bit of ale, but it is George Washington's recipe if you want to try it. 
Remember, the best way to enjoy the podcast is with one of the featured brews. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button on one of your directories. It's the only way to get new episodes immediately after they are released. And to the growing list of listeners from 40 countries and hundreds of cities across the United States, and in honor of the father of the country, I say cheers. In your book, The Unavoidable Subject of Regret, focus on slavery and the enslaved community at Mount Vernon. But I'm wondering about George Washington's youth. What type of farm or plantation does he grow up on or does did his father own or what kind of the environment do, does he grow up in? George Washington was the oldest son in his father's second family. So after his first wife died, within a couple of years, Augustine Washington married a young woman named Mary Ball, and he'd had four children with his first wife, two of whom survived to adulthood. And with Mary Ball, he had another six children, one of whom died as a toddler, and, and the others became adults. Augustine died in 1743 when George Washington was 11 years old. There's a lot we don't know about Washington's childhood. There are a lot of papers we wish that we had you know, and things like that. So he was mostly raised by his widowed mother. Unlike a lot of women in Virginia, she did not remarry after the death of Augustine, you know, raised the, the five surviving children on her own. Augustine had had a number of plantations from this area near Alexandria, Virginia, down to around Fredericksburg, Virginia. As a small child, Washington, well, Augustine moved his family several times during George Washington's, you know, very young childhood. Augustine also had also had business interests. He was involved in iron smelting and had several iron furnaces. You know, so he was somebody who was trying to get ahead. He's got a large family and he's trying to acquire what he needs to take care of and set up those children when they become adults. And unfortunately, he dies very young, which has an impact on George Washington's education because Augustine and his two oldest sons were all educated in England. We suppose that Augustine probably had similar plans for George and his brothers when they got old enough for school, and he died before they could put those plans into execution and, and send the children to England to school. And so George Washington felt for a long time, for most of the rest of his life, that he, he said his education had been defective. He didn't talk much when he was in groups of people in the legislature, I think because these other people, you know, had been to college <laughs> and had a much better education than he had. And so he was largely self-taught. When his father dies, is that the first time he becomes a slave owner? Yes, it is. When he inherits slaves from his father? Mm -hmm. Yes, he inherited the farm near Fredericksburg where his, he and his mother and siblings were living. So it, not immediately, but that was to be his when he grew up. His older brothers were given several other farms. His brother, older brother Lawrence, inherited Mount Vernon. You know, and there were other places for and things given to the, the other children. Washington inherited, according to his father's will, he was to receive 10 slaves 
you know, he was only 11 years old at that point. So he's 18 before he actually gains control of those people. And by that time, one of the women had had a child who he inherits 11 <laughs> at the age of 18. The other thing that you hear about is his marriage to Martha Dandridge Custis. And when Daniel Custis died in 1757, the slaves that through that marriage, Washington was responsible. Can you discuss the law at that time and, and what that meant for Washington? And what it means for this enslaved people, too. Um, <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> the law at the time said that when a person died and didn't have a will, so it's an intestate estate, one third of the property that that person owned would be set aside for their widow and for her lifetime. So she has the lifetime use of money, land, enslaved people. So one third of, of what the late husband had owned. And she has a life interest in them, in this property. And when she dies, the property is to be divided up among whatever heirs, whatever the husband's heirs are still alive. And so when Daniel died, Martha married women were considered the same person as their husband. <laughs> um, and he's the person. When he died, she had a life interest in one third of what he owned. And I can't remember the figure for the, for the money that Daniel Custis owned, but he had over 17,000 acres of land and almost 200 enslaved people. And so Martha got a life interest in all of that. So she's got one third of, of the property, including the slaves, as a widow, could manage all of that property, which she does for about 18 months after Daniel's death. She marries George Washington about 18 months after. And she marries him in January 1759, brings two young children to the marriage, a, a little boy whose name is John Park Custis and a little girl whose name is Martha Park Custis. She's known, the little girl's known as Patsy and the little boy is Jackie. And she's been managing everything up until the marriage. When she marries George Washington, he then gets control of the, the Custis property. But there are a lot of restrictions on what he can do with it also. <laughs> you know, Martha's one third is also managed by George Washington. He has, as the children's legal guardian, he looks after their money. He looks after, manages their slaves and the land. He has to turn over to a court his guardian accounts for what he's spending on the children from their money because people want to make sure that you know, the second husband isn't you know, embezzling money or spending wildly or you know, gambling with, <laughs> with the kids' inheritance. If Washington is acquiring those slaves, he had slaves himself. He gets mm -hmm. uh, slaves that he, are under his care after the marriage to Martha, and he purchases slaves throughout his life. Mm -hmm. When he enters the war um, in 1775, how many slaves and what's the size of the of the estates that he owns? Washington inherited about 2,500 acres of land at Mount Vernon and gradually adds to it. 
And so by the end of his life, he's up to 8,000 acres. And I'm, I can't remember what it <laughs> what the figure was for right before the revolution. About the start of the, the war, he has something like roughly 200 slaves at Mount Vernon, and that's the mix of, you know, his own people, Martha's dower slaves, and the slaves who belong to the children. So those Custis slaves are, some of them are at Mount Vernon, and some of them are on the Custis plantations down near Williamsburg, Virginia. What impact does Washington's military service, or the fact that that he's a military officer, have on the management of the slaves, his relationship with the slaves. I know that when he was in charge of black soldiers, that had to impact his views on slavery as well. It did. Up until about the time that the war started, no one in the country except the Quakers <laughs> were talking about the abolition of slavery. Nobody was really questioning it. And this is pretty much true in England, too. It's, it's as you're approaching the period of the, you know, the mid-1770s that people start maybe thinking that slavery might be wrong. And this is a minority view for a long time. And over here, the main proponents of it are the Quakers, who are considered a bit weird because they're, they're pacifists. <laughs> You know, and they they do things like, you know, wanting to not pay their taxes for wars and things like that. So Washington wouldn't have only starts hearing about this, you know, right about the time the war starts. During the conflict with the British, uh, Washington is kind of surprised, I think, you know, when he gets up to New England and finds out that they have black soldiers in the in the army. (laughs) So it. He sees this as a, he and a lot of the other generals see this as a dangerous thing. You've got armed black people who had been enslaved who are in the army and they think this is just dangerous. And so they forced them out of the army at first. After a number of months, you know, he learns that, well, not all the black soldiers had been enslaved. You know, a lot of them were free already. And they're also having trouble getting enough soldiers. And so, they're given permission to rehire the free black people who had been in the army and to enlist others. The figures I've seen are that somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of Washington's army during the revolution are, are black soldiers. This is his first real time spending time around free blacks, people who aren't enslaved. And he sees that they're very good soldiers. They fight, you know, as well as his white soldiers do. They're enthusiastic about the cause. And that starts to, I think, to, to weigh on him and to, to change his mind about free black people. Other things that are happening during the war, he's got some of his young aides are proponents of abolition. And this includes Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Around my house, we joke and say, you have to say, when you say that name, you have to say, Alexander Hamilton, That's you know, right. like the yeah. song. <laughs> you got to <laughs> sing it. You can't say it, Mary. You got to sing right. it. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Lynn Manuel. Now we always have to sing Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> and Hamilton and John Lawrence, who, despite the fact that he grew up as the son of a politician, in South Carolina, who was heavily involved in the slave trade, 
John Lawrence was against it and, and believed that the slaves should be freed. And then the other big influence, I think, was the Marquis de Lafayette from France, who was in his late teens when he came over here for the war. And he's really, really interested in abolition. And towards the end of the war, proposes an experiment, and he'd, he'd like Washington to take part in it, where they would buy one or two plantations in the northern part of South America and run them with free black people to prove that it could be done. Washington he doesn't really have the money at the end of the war to get involved in, in that project, but he praises Lafayette greatly for you know, the goodness of his heart in trying this experiment. Now, I'm going to say his granddaughter, but it's actually through the, through the Custis line. She said that he, and this was from your book, that he was generous, noble master, that the slaves feared and loved. And I know the fear must come from his temper, which is known throughout history. <laughs> yes. Could you explain her comment? You know, generous, noble but feared and loved at the same time. Nellie Custis, who is Martha Washington's youngest granddaughter, and she and George Washington, Martha and George never had any children of their own. So they've always got kids in the house, but their first, you know, her children from her first marriage and then her grandchildren and then tons of nieces and nephews. That's who Nellie is. And she's a, a real favorite of George Washington's. Slaves and I think everybody in the family <laughs> knew that he had a really, really bad temper, and it was something that he had struggled with from, you know, when he was a little boy, trying to get control of that. And so he's usually an extremely controlled person, but it sometimes breaks out. During the presidency, Mrs. Liston, who Henrietta Liston, who was the wife of the British ambassador, really came to love George and Martha Washington. She visited them at Mount Vernon as well as in, in Philadelphia, which was the capital at the time. But she mentioned that Washington did have a bad temper and that he usually kept it under very tight control, but that in the family and with his the enslaved people, that he would sometimes just really lose it. <laughs> and it was those situations where if his temper was going to show that that's, that's where it happened. I wonder how many times it's the image of Washington of being so under control, which he develops that image himself. But when people see him under control almost all of the time, cool under pressure, it's another attribute that you often hear about Washington. So when you see him out of control or angry, it's almost out of character, so it's, it's something that someone would note. So it may be a normal response, maybe. I don't, I'm just, I don't know if I'm just trying to give him credit, but it seems when, when an individual of his stature and people see him constantly in control, when he comes out of control just a little bit, it's just easily recognized. Yes, and, and memorable people remember <laughs> that that happened, yeah. Charles Lee, I think, uh, remember <laughs> he had an incident. <laughs> if anyone would know, right? <laughs> Washington, since we're talking about his image, I know that he's concerned about his image. It goes back when he's younger, I'm sure, when you're growing up in that 
situation there and the aristocracy of Virginia. But then afterwards, he knows his image is important to the cause and then eventually to the country. And his, the view of him as the patriarch of liberty, does that change his views on slavery? The fact that he knows he's in this image, people are going to follow what he does. He's setting precedent and, he, and he's guarding that image long term. I think he's definitely guarding his image. He's somebody who cares about what people think about him. You know, anybody who's involved with politics or has a public, you know, very public role is concerned that, that people trust him and you know, have respect for him. So, yeah, that is something that he's definitely thinking about and may have helped to improve, you know, the way he treated enslaved people at Mount Vernon after the war. There are hundreds of visitors from around the United States and also from Europe coming to America because they want to see what this new country is like and this new government. And they also want to see George Washington. And so hundreds of people come to Mount Vernon every year. They could have told some really bad stories about it and and ruined his reputation. There was stuff going on that, that really reflected badly on him and his character. During the war, one of the other things that probably influenced him was a lot of the rhetoric you know, from the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, you know, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The, the rhetoric about fighting for freedom because they didn't want the British to enslave them. It, all of that, I think, you know, Washington's not stupid and he can see that, you know, it's kind of Hippocratic or hypocritical, you know, to, to own slaves and then be talking the way they do about not wanting to be slaves and wanting to be free and have the right to free Englishmen and um, <laughs> that kind of thing. So he's definitely trying you know, to hold his reputation in good standing. We know that the revolution impacts his view on slavery. Some of the individuals, those young people that were part of, that he was in and around during the revolution. How about his religion? I know that you've studied that in depth. What was his religious beliefs and did that impact his view of slavery at all? I know in many cases in the South, religion was used to justify slavery. Using religion to justify slavery. Um, I think it's more of a first half of the 19th century thing as abolition, the calls for abolition are getting louder and louder, and people who are slave owners are feeling, you know, very put upon because of all the things the abolitionists are saying. They're looking for things in the Bible that would indicate that slavery was was all right, that God had sort of ordained it in the hierarchy of the way societies are organized. And which is a good time to say that, you know, as he was growing up, George Washington would have, he probably didn't, probably anybody that his family socialized with and had business dealings with probably owned slaves. Or if they didn't, they aspired to own slaves to help increase their wealth and to help increase their status in the community. As a child, the little children were taught to read in Virginia in the 18th century. 
the Bible tended to be, you know, one of the books that they they read. There were books of sermons that people would read. They also looked to ancient Greek and Roman authors. And both those societies were societies where slavery was just a fact of life. That was pretty much true in the Bible as well. There's no statement in the Bible that specifically say you shouldn't have slaves. And so he wouldn't be reading, he wouldn't have been hearing about cultures where people didn't have slaves. So he would have grown up thinking that it was just a, a fact of life. It's just the way people do things. If I can ask you about the mixed-race slaves that were on Washington's plantations, there's the story of the slave woman, Venus. There's a rumor that he may have had a relationship with Venus. I didn't think Washington could have any children, and I know that there were comments in the primary sources that indicate, and this was in your book too, that he was very loyal to Martha and didn't have any relations outside of wedlock. But something could have happened prior to that, which was very common, as your book uh, points out, with some of those people from the aristocracy. It was not unusual at all for upper-class men or even working-class men to have relationships with enslaved women that were near them and, you know, possibly working in the same trade. At Mount Vernon, we've got evidence in one family where the mother was a seamstress and seems to have had four children with two different indentured or hired servants at Mount Vernon, both Englishmen, if I remember correctly. One was a tailor, the other one was a weaver. People work together, and we don't know, unfortunately, the the details of their relationships. It could have been, you know, pretty much, you know, think of the, the gamut of, of sexual relations among humans and could have been, you know, anywhere along the line. <laughs> there, we just don't have any evidence one way or the other. In the case of Venus, well, and and another thing to keep in mind is just because George Washington maybe couldn't have children, you know, doesn't mean that he didn't have sex with his slaves. But again, we have no evidence that he did. And Venus was a, a maid at the home of George Washington's younger brother, John Augustine Washington. He lived in that Bushfield Plantation, which is about 95 or 100 miles from Mount Vernon. So it isn't just, uh, it's not like with Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, where this is somebody in the same household. In looking at when West Ford was born and where George Washington was nine months before, the best evidence suggests that Washington was still with the army when Venus became pregnant. So you know, he wasn't anywhere near even Virginia, the state of Virginia, much, much less Westmoreland County when West Ford was then conceived. Ford, we think, was born in 1784. He seems to have been a very talented person, very intelligent, handsome, and well-respected by both black and white people who knew him. He comes to Mount Vernon about 1802, which is when Martha Washington died, and the estate was left to George Washington's nephew, Bushrod Washington, who is his brother, John Augustine's son, oldest son, and a Supreme Court justice. 
Ford, West Ford is freed about 1805. He works as a freeman for the Washington family at Mount Vernon from then pretty much the rest of his life. He died in 1860, summer of 1863 at Mount Vernon. He, by that time, the plantation was owned by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. And two of the employees went over to check on him because they had heard that he wasn't doing well. And they took him back to Mount Vernon and he died there and is thought to be buried at Mount Vernon as well. This is, you know, during the Civil War when there is a lot of upheaval in the local African-American community. Lots of the people are you know, getting jobs with the Union Army as teamsters, as cooks, as laundresses. And so it sounds like his family wasn't around to take care of him, and, and that's why he was, was brought to Mount Vernon. Several members of the family worked for the Ladies Association and were, were quite helpful in helping them understand things like the colors in the room when the Washingtons lived there and how this, that, and the other thing were done on the estate. West Ford apparently had been really helpful um, with things like that when the first renovation of Mount Vernon was done early in the late, the Ladies Association's ownership of, of Mount Vernon. Is there any record of who he believed his father was? No, I wish there was. Uh, there's one branch of his family who believes that George Washington was West Ford's father. Another branch of the family believes that Bushrod Washington, George's nephew, was West Ford's father. And I and several other people believe that he's the son, that West Ford is the son of John Augustine and Hannah Washington, so the owners of Bushfield Plantations youngest son who was killed in an accident. He was away at school and a gun went off and he was killed at the age of 17. A number of years later, when the son was, youngest son was killed in early 1784, Hannah was just about, you know, catatonic when she first learned about this and they were really worried about her for a long time. In her will, she asks that West Ford be inoculated for smallpox, apprenticed to someone so that he can learn a trade in order to support himself and freed at the age of 21. He's the only enslaved person that she singles out in this way. There's some other things, that details about the will, about her will, that kind of give you a clue that it, it might be the youngest son. West Ford is kind of the last thing she has to hold on to from this child who was killed. So when Washington's in Philadelphia and there's the law that states that if a slave were in Philadelphia for, I believe, at least six months, Mm -hmm. that the slave would then be freed. Edmund Randolph is the attorney general. He brings that up to Martha Washington. George Washington gets criticized for the actions that are taken after that. Could you describe that law and then how the Washingtons kind of maneuvered around it. The law was the way you described it. So if an enslaved person is brought into Pennsylvania, if they are in the state for six months continuously with no break in the residence, they can sue for their freedom. So Edmund Randolph, had just, who's also a Virginian, 
comes to tell Martha Washington about this in the spring of 1791. George Washington had just left not long before that to do his tour of the southern states because he's trying as president to get to every state in the Union so that he can learn what they're like to get to know the people and so the people can get to know him. And uh, so he's, he's gone. And Randolph talks to Martha Washington and to Tobias Lear, who was George Washington's longtime secretary and also ends up marrying two of Martha Washington's nieces, not at the same time. So he's, he's also sort of a, a, a member of the family or will be a member of the family shortly. Randolph says, you know, this law that a couple of his slaves had just taken advantage of, he said, it might be something that you all need to think about because your people could be vulnerable too. So Martha Washington and Tobias Lear work out a scheme so that the enslaved people in the Philadelphia mansion are rotated back and forth to Mount Vernon so that no one is ever there for six months, for longer than six months at a time. Or, you know, five months or whatever it is that they have to do to, to, to break the cycle. She sends the cook uh, back to Mount Vernon. The excuse, I think, was so that George Washington could enjoy the food that he makes when he's back at Mount Vernon. Other people are sent back. She promised one person, uh, uh, one of the waiters in the mansion named Austin. She promised Austin's wife that she would send him home periodically. And so when she does send him back, it's just because she's keeping her promise to Austin's wife. And and that's the way they manage it for the, the rest of the presidency. But one of the things that they were, and they write to George Washington on the road, he writes back and says he agrees with this decision, the best way to handle things. Hercules, the cook, finds out about the law, and he's incensed that the Washingtons are doing this, that they don't trust him. So so he's you know, very upset about it. So rather than send him home right away, Martha and Tobias Lear let him stay in Philadelphia, you know, past the six months limit, and then they send him home for a visit, you know, which is kind of an interesting thing, you know, proclaiming his loyalty and that he wouldn't do something like that. Now, interestingly, in 1797, just before Washington retires from the presidency, well, that fall, the Washingtons had been home. So this is the fall of 1796. A number of the enslaved people are left at Mount Vernon rather than going back to Philadelphia at that point, because the Washingtons are you know, getting ready to come home. They hire a temporary staff in Philadelphia to get them over the next four months until they leave. Hercules and a number of the other people are at Mount Vernon because they don't feel that they need them while they're going through all the, you know, the last months and all the entertaining and, and the, you know, the chaos of packing and moving and that kind of thing. So Hercules is back at Mount Vernon. A lot of people say that he was demoted at that point, and, and he actually wasn't. He's home. The butler, frankly, is 
there at Mount Vernon. There's another man who waits on the table. And there's nothing for them to do because George and Martha Washington are at home. They get sort of assigned to work with the gardener who could use a little extra help at that time of year. And they're doing really messy jobs. They're, you know, digging roots out of the out of the ground to try to, you know, stop whatever this plant is from <laughs> um, from growing again. They're trying to get rid of some of the plants. They're painting the mansion. They're doing, you know, all kinds of jobs that are kind of bully- Hercules thinks are sort of beneath his position. And so he he's pretty angry about it, and he runs away on February twenty second, seventeen ninety seven which was George Washington's birthday. So I think that was his way of saying <laughs> you know, he would have you know, been making food for birthday dinners and, and things like that for years. So he would have known the importance of February 22nd. You know, when I wrote the book, I was, um, we didn't know what had happened to, to Hercules after he left. Martha Washington got a letter from a, former aide of George Washington from the Revolutionary War period. And I believe he was then mayor of New York City. And we don't have Colonel Varick's letter, um, but we have Martha's answer. And she says, he must have said, do you want me to keep looking for Hercules? Because they you know, figured he would be running to Philadelphia or New York. And she writes him back and said, no, I've, I've got a new cook and you don't have to worry about it. And, you know, everything's fine and just you don't bother. What she doesn't say to him is that Hercules was one of these slaves who belonged to George Washington himself. And she had freed those people on January 1st, 1801. And so Hercules would have been, been free anyway. A friend of mine, Ramin Ganeshram, who is the president of a historical society in in Connecticut um, has written a novel about George Washington and Hercules. She sat down to talk and talked with their genealogy expert on the staff, who's done a lot of work on African American genealogy, and said, "How do we find what happened to him? Because no one no, no one knew." So the genealogist said, "Well." Washington purchased him from a man named Poe with the last name Posey. And often African Americans would take the name of the owner of the plantation when when they were growing up or where they grew up. She starts looking for Hercules Posey in New York and Philadelphia. And she finds him in New York. He's working as a cook. He's listed in the city several of the city directories for the early 19th century. And there was a record of his death in, I believe, 1812 and his burial at an African-American cemetery in New York City. So we finally had the answer to what happened to Hercules. That that was really, really exciting. And one of the things I was hoping, you know, when I did the book was that answers to some of the longtime questions we've had would start coming out of the woodwork <laughs> so when, you know people would start looking for the answers and, and would find them so that was just a real thrill 
So one of the slaves that's even in images with Washington was Billy Lee. Mm -hmm. Could you explain who he was and his, I guess, preferred relationship he had with Washington? Billy Lee was purchased along with his brother, Frank, in 1768 from a distant relative of George Washington's who lived, you know, in another part of the state. Her husband had died and she was selling a number of the enslaved people that they owned. So Washington bought Billy and Frank. Billy was probably about 16 at the time and Frank was a few years younger and brings them back to Mount Vernon. But Frank eventually becomes the butler in the mansion. Billy is George Washington's personal servant, so he's almost always with him wherever he goes. Um, the two of them both hunt a lot with the hounds, and one of Billy's jobs is, you know, was to take care of the hounds. He and Frank both did that. He's with Washington throughout the Revolutionary War. So from 1775 to the end of 1783, he's with George Washington in camp. He looks after Washington's papers. He looks after, you know, Washington's equipment, things like his telescope and stuff like that. He runs errands for Washington. The two are together for, for those eight years. And so when Washington sits down to write his last will and testament, he first leaves Mount Vernon to Martha Washington for the remainder of her life. And then the next thing he does is free William Lee immediately and set up an annuity to take care of him. You know, when he's setting up the fact that he's, he's going to be manumitting William, he talks about how grateful he was for Billy's loyalty through all eight years of the war. And so I think, you know, when you think about what it was that William did, you know, he's sometimes waiting on the table. He's carrying letters for Washington. He is helping him dress. He sleeps in the same tent, just in a, a separate part of it. He's around when Washington is talking to people and, you know, other officers and diplomats who are coming both from the States and, and, and from Europe. He's around when Washington's having private conversations. He knows so much about the army and about Washington himself and Washington's health and you know, all kinds of things like that. That would have been really a coup for the British, <laughs> you know, if he had run away to the British and, and told what he knew. And Washington was just incredibly grateful for the rest of his life, for the fact that Billy was loyal to him through this whole period. And so from then on, like, you know, if Billy asks a favor, Washington feels like he sort of, he has to, has to give him what he wants. And at the very end, he gets, he gives him freedom. So the last question I have for you, Mary, is you often hear a very simple statement that Washington freed his slaves when he died. Could you explain, did Washington make any effort to make even a larger imprint on getting, you know, getting rid of slavery um, before that and is just left with what he could do at the end of his life? And how significant was it? Was it rare for someone to do that? 
It wasn't rare, but it wasn't common either. Uh, Up until 1782, individual slave owners in Virginia could not manumit their slaves. The only way you could free someone is if you like petition to the governor and the House of Burgesses to free a certain person. And it was generally for some kind of heroic action or something like that. And then it took an act of the legislature to free those people. And that's only after 1782. Up until then, you, you know, pretty much couldn't, couldn't free them even if you wanted to. So after 1782 and with you know, the rhetoric in the war and people being excited about freedom and a lot of people starting to think that, you know, maybe, maybe slavery is wrong. You find people in Virginia, you know, manumitting their slaves. And one of the most famous cases was a person named Robert Carter, who was from a very prominent family, who converted from being Episcopalian to Baptist. And at the time, the Baptists were anti-slavery. Kind of the enthusiasm of this new conversion, um, he freed something like 500 people because of a, you know, a, a change in his religion and religious beliefs. That's probably the most famous case. Between 1782 and, and 1800, you know, there were thousands of enslaved people who were freed by their owners. You know, it didn't reach the majority of the people. <laughs> um, the, the majority of the people didn't, didn't see that this was a good, a good thing. What does Washington actually do? What does his will actually say? After Washington leaves Mount Vernon to Martha Washington for the rest of her life, he then, you know, frees Billy Lee. And then he has a, a long section where he talks about the other enslaved people who belong to him. He decrees that they will continue to be enslaved until Martha's death. And at that point, they will go free. That's actually what ha- what happens. Now, this is about 123 people that we're talking about. He also frees another 30-some people that he owns because of a debt. And they actually live on a plantation of a relative. And the relative died and his widow is living there. And so Washington says that the people at that plantation will continue to serve until she dies. And then they'll be gradually released. The adults will be released very soon afterwards. And the children will be freed when they reach a certain age, like 25 or something like that. So he freed all the people that he had control over, that he owned and had control over. In 1799, when Washington died, there were 41 people who were being rented. Uh, 40 from a neighbor and one from a relative. And those people would go, would probably go back to the people who owned them. Then there were 153 people at Mount Vernon who were owned by the Custis estate. So they're dower slaves. They're Martha Washington's dower slaves. And one of the things Washington talks about is that he put off the emancipation as long as he did because he he was concerned that his the slaves that he owned had intermarried over the previous 40 years 
with Martha Washington's dower slaves. Because the dower slaves were to be divided among whatever heirs Martha, Daniel, heirs of Daniel Park Custis were still around when Martha died, he couldn't free them. He's really concerned because families are going to be broken up. Children followed the condition of their mother. So, you know, here in America, the, that rule was taken from, from ancient Rome. And I think this is probably because, you know, until very recently, DNA test, you, you couldn't be sure <laughs> who a child's father was. You, you could have a really good idea of who the mother was. Yeah, generally, and so, yeah, most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, if a male Custis slave was married to a female Washington slave and they had children, all of their children would belong to George Washington. If a male Washington slave was married to a female Custis dower slave, all their children would belong to the Custises. Washington was, he knew that families were going to be broken up and he's somebody to whom family meant a lot. He just didn't want to see that and he didn't want want Martha to have to deal with it. She was one of the executors of Washington's will and she was advised by several of the others to go ahead and free George Washington's slaves as soon as she could because they were concerned that some of them might try to kill her in order to hurry up the, the manumission. And so George Washington died on December 14, 1799, and Martha freed the Washington slaves on January 1st, 1801. So, which was as soon as she could, could do it because of the law, you had to wait till all the crops that were in the ground were out and had been harvested and, and everything before you could let them go. One of the things we have in the collection is a, a document that shows the Custis heirs, there are four of them, three granddaughters and a, and a grandson, dividing up the Custis slaves. And so there are four lists, one for each grandchild, and it talks about lot. So it's not clear whether... You know, they're just kind of saying, oh, I would like to have this person and this person and this person, or whether they were drawing lots for, you know, who gets first pick or who gets this person. We're not quite sure how it went. And the document we have is clearly sort of preliminary. And we don't have a final list of who went where. How has the interpretation of slavery at Mount Vernon itself changed in the time that you've been there? Oh, it's changed dramatically. When I first came, if they talked about enslaved people at all, they used the word servants. And we had people who on on the staff who couldn't even say the word slave. It it just was not interpreted at, at Mount Vernon. There were physical spaces that had been, you know, like the slave quarters on either side of the the wings of the of the greenhouse were built as quarters for the enslaved artisans who, who worked um, here. That had been burned in the 1830s, the fire in the 1830s. It was in the late 40s and early 50s that um, it was decided to reconstruct the greenhouse and the slave quarters in the wings. 
And so people could see, you know, the physical place where some of the slaves lived and they could see the outbuildings um, where the enslaved people worked. And, you know, a lot of Virginia plantations don't have their outbuildings anymore. And it's actually, you know, I think one of the things that the Ladies Association was, you know, really sort of prescient about was they were advised to tear down the slave quarters in the last half of the 19th century because it brought up all kinds of bad feelings about the Civil War and things like that. And Anne Pamela Cunningham, who fought, who founded the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, said, no, the, the, the outbuildings would stay because people wanted to see the place where Washington lived like it was when he lived there. And those buildings were part of the story of Mount Vernon. So that was very different from a a lot of historic houses. In 1929, the ladies put a marker in the slave cemetery dedicated to the enslaved people who had, or as they put it in 1929, the, the many colored servants who worked at Mount Vernon from the 18th to the uh, 19th century. So in some ways, they've been kind of ahead of the game. But, you know, then there was this period like after 1929 until the 1980s when some of those those things and places were around, but there really wasn't much interpretation and people didn't go to the slave burial ground. They they were not encouraged to, to go back there. And, you know, so they wouldn't have seen the the markers that the ladies put in 1929. And so it wasn't until the 1980s that people really started, that Mount Vernon really started exploring the issue of slavery. And it wasn't until the the early 1990s that we began having a tour focused specifically on the lives of the slaves at Mount Vernon. I came in 1980 and Williamsburg was just at the beginning stages of interpreting slavery at that site. By the late 80s, people were starting to have symposiums and things like that where they talked about how do you interpret slavery at historic sites. The early 1990s, we were making steps to interpret. And so we've got now character interpreters who portray actual enslaved people who lived and worked at Mount Vernon. We have tours about slave life at Mount Vernon, special events that are related to slavery. We've made friends with a number of the descendants of the enslaved people from Mount Vernon and are collecting their stories. There's just a lot going on now. It's a really fun time. In 2016, we opened a huge exhibit in our museum on entitled Live is Bound Together, and it's about slavery at Mount Vernon. So we're doing a lot right now, and hopefully, you know, we'll do more in the future. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Mary. Okay, and um, it was really nice talking with you. I would like to thank my guest today, Mount Vernon research historian, Mary Thompson. If you're interested in her book, The Only Unavoidable Subject to Regret, just click on the link below. You will not be disappointed. Featured brew was George Washington's own recipe for small beer. If you're brave enough to try this recipe out for yourself, make over 30 gallons of ale, well then, I definitely salute you. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. Just 
click the subscribe button on the podcast directory that you use. It's the only way to get new episodes immediately when they're released. There's an episode you especially enjoy. Please share it with a friend. And to get additional information, like our Facebook page. The music was provided by the band Bones Fork. They're working on new material as we speak. That should be released soon. There are more great shows on the way, including a Tales from the Gym City, a talk on revolutionary mothers, and the Vatican's secret search for the tomb of St. Peter. So join us again next time when we talk, think, and drink on History of Go-Go.